millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Out of Limits of the Truth Radio Show. Outoflimitsradio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Today, we are going to take a break from engaging the uh, insane world that we live in. We're not going to focus on metaphysics or civil liberties. We're going to focus on how you can generate as much money as possible, how to have a millionaire mindset. This is an upbeat type show, and our featured guest has incredible credentials. Let us begin. It is a great joy to welcome to our show Neil S. Godfrey. She is a financial voice woman and a pioneer for the topic of kids and money. She's a 27-time author, New York Times best-selling author. It's some of the books called Money Does Not Grow on Trees. And you can learn more about Neil by going to her website at neilgodfrey.com. And that's N-E-A-L-E, godfrey.com. It's Godfrey, welcome to our show. Thank you. Great to be here, Ryan. Thank you. Godfrey, from your perspective, what are some of the fundamental lessons that parents inadvertently teach kids at an early age about money that causes them to have a poverty consciousness? That's a great question. I mean, I think that the first thing that the parents have to teach is the only way to get money is to earn it. There's no entitlement program out there. And you don't have to have a poverty mentality when you're empowered to be able to earn, save, spend, and share your money. And as long as you know that you can do that, then you are empowered to do it. Okay, so what are some of the ways that they can use examples? So say, for example, you know, you have a parent that's working for money, has a job, and they're kind of going, they're kind of just making it. How do you teach your child lessons about money that's empowering even if you yourself are struggling with it? Well, what's really interesting that I found that when you start teaching the parents who teach their kids, the parents start learning at the same time. And the fact of the matter is we can either be a slave to money or we can be empowered to take charge of it. If you live above your means, you're always going to struggle. You're always going to have that fight. You're always going to get to the end of the month and say, where did my paycheck go? Most people in the United States, Ryan, even before the pandemic, had to borrow $400 just to cover an emergency. 
Why would we do that to ourselves? Why would you box yourself into a corner? And I'm not talking about people who've had a tragedy. Obviously, that's a different situation. I'm talking about people who do have jobs and just aren't ever able to get their heads above water. Robert Kiyosaki brings this up, and a lot of people I've had the pleasure of speaking with say that they keep on printing the money. And because they keep on printing the money, the currency is reduced in value. So the people who save, I guess, are ultimately punished. So from your perspective, when you have a situation like this where the currency itself is losing value and where savings could be counterproductive to ultimately gaining wealth, what are some of the lessons that parents and children can learn together when it comes to saving or growing money? Well, saving is great because it's a habit to start, but if you don't invest, you are losing value. So what you have to do is really get those kids on an investing mode when they're young. And a lot of people don't invest because they're very intimidated by the stock market. And when you look at the market and learn the basics, it's like, that's it. That's all you have to know about the market. Yep. Because if I ask you, what devices do you use? What clothes do you buy? Where do you shop? What do you do? You can talk about the trends. You know that. So the stock market reflects that. And if you're not goofy about it, in other words, don't be a day trader. Don't think that you're going to outsmart the market because you're not. Only 10% of day traders make money. So what you want is to have the habit of saving and then the habit of investing that money. All right, so if you are an adult and, you, say, for example, you get some rental properties and I guess that you have some assets that are producing money, what are some of the things that you can introduce to children at an early age and say, look, you know, when you have money, this is some of the, these are some of the activities that you can do that will put you in that investor-type mentality? I mean, should they ultimately acquire things for a lemonade stand? Should they acquire assets and resources for a project that will ultimately make money should they start their own business. What are some of the things you'd recommend that parents teach children at an early age that will put them in that investor-type mentality? Well, I think it's really important for parents to find out, do you have a budding entrepreneur on your hands? And there are a lot of things that parents can do to encourage kids and help them to start their own businesses and look over their shoulder and help them design goals and a business plan and what's your profit and loss statement and are you investing? Do you need other people to help you? So I think that's a really important lesson. On the other side, in terms of investing, if you are someone who's invested, let's say, in real estate and you have rental properties, get the kids involved. Sit down with them. Show them the properties. Show them your profit and loss statement. Show them the positive and the negative that, you know, if you're, you're renting out a property, you might get that call at 2 o'clock in the morning that the furnace has broken. If you don't want that call, don't be that type of investor. Or conversely, you could say, hey, it's increasing in value. It's increasing in value over the market. I have the potential to invest in this and then sell it at some point in the future. And that's how I will realize my profit. Get the kids involved. What would you say would be two of the best lessons that you'd recommend teaching to children at an early age? In addition to saving, in addition to investing, what are some of the things that are going to make them resilient? Is it 
may be beneficial for them to to fail at an early age and become and overcome that. I mean, what are some of the things you recommend that parents do? It doesn't even have to be money related, but at least strengthen their resilience to be able to accept or become more familiar with the risk of investing. Well, I think the first thing is is that you have to start teaching them that the only thing in life that you really have to learn is that things change and you have to be resilient enough to be able to cope with those changes. And, you know, God forbid, it could be illness or it could be lots of other things, losing a job. We're sitting in the middle of a pandemic. So I think that we can't raise our kids to think that la, 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 everything's going to be wonderful in the future. It's not. The question is, how do you handle that? The other thing is, to teach them that they can be in charge of their own financial affairs. They can learn those things. They can be empowered. They don't have to be a slave to what's happening. They can learn to live below their means. They can learn if they want to take risks. But, you know, to assume risks because you're living on the edge because you're not sure if you're going to be able to make your mortgage next month, you know, kind of to me isn't a great way to live. And the other thing is they need to know that no matter what, they can be okay. Don't make money the biggest secret in the family. That's the biggest failing. I mean, we we see, no, 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 don't show the kids that. No, don't let the kids know. Well, don't expect the kids to grow up to be financially savvy if you've kept them out of everything. I'm not saying you have to tell them exactly what you earn, but you have to let them know this is a real budget. This is what we can afford and this is what we can't afford because this is what we choose to do. We choose to save money for college. We choose to save money for retirement. And this is how we're going to get there. And by the way, we've also chosen to send you to college. And by the way, if you can't afford it, say to the kids honestly, you know what? I can't afford a four-year private school. I can't afford going into debt for $200,000. You can go to a community college or a state school, or you can borrow the money, but understand what that means. So the big thing is setting expectations that are real. You know, it kills me when I see the kids working so hard, getting into that Ivy League school, and then the parents go, "Mm, you know what, I can't quite afford that. Don't set the kids up like that. So don't make it a secret. Don't set the kids up. Be transparent. Come clean okay. with the kids. I definitely appreciate that. And I find your background very fascinating. I mean, you've accomplished so much in the course of your life and career. What is it about you that you believe is the reason why you're successful? That you know, you're in a, you've been in a very competitive industry and you've managed to come on top, and you've done a lot of wonderful things. You've been so productive. What is it about your mentality, your work ethic, your drive, that has separated you apart from all other people within your industry? Well, I guess if I had to answer that, I would say, first of all, I found a problem that needed to be solved that I was passionate about. I created the topic of teaching kids about money in the 1980s when I looked for books to find for my own little kids, and there were none. And my daughter said to me, Mommy, why don't you write the books? And of course, she saw the look on my face. I knew how to be a bank president. I knew how to do big deals, but I didn't know how to write a book. And she said to me, Oh, Mommy, 
you're afraid. Now, this is a three-year-old, so, of course, I responded, being the great mother I am, I crouched, looked her in the face and said, no, I'm not afraid. But I was. But I was willing to go outside my comfort zone. So number one, I would say, find something you're passionate about. If I'm not going to teach my own kids about money and other kids, who is? So that's number one. And number two, are you willing to take the risk to leave being a bank president to go become an entrepreneur? And the answer was, yeah, I can do that. Because I think it's also fear of looking back after, you know, when you're lying on your deathbed at age 100 going, eh, you know, I should have done that. I really should have done it. I don't want any regrets. So that's really how I've conducted my life. Excellent. Well, you've done a lot. You contributed so much. And when I look at, when people look at your career and they look at all the things that you've written, I mean, writing books, teaching, you know, helping out so many other people, how does an individual maximize their time? How does a person, I mean, how are you able to accomplish all of this? It seems like you'd have to have 10 or 12 people working full-time to accomplish what you've accomplished. There's some other people who are very successful CEOs. They manage to do that. So what is the key to creating and to being super productive when I guess it seems that we never have enough time to get the basic work done? I have a little note in my office that I keep around, and it says, does it matter profoundly? And when something comes up, if you can answer the question, and yes, it matters profoundly, then you do it and you work it into your schedule. If it comes up, yeah, no, doesn't matter profoundly, you don't do it. And I also believe we're not just here to take up space. The not-for-profit world is incredibly important in terms of giving back. And for me, that's something that I put in there and make sure that I do. And obviously, family and friends, um, it's more challenging in today's world but that keeping up and that connectivity is really important. And just make sure that you enjoy what you do. Awesome. And are there any particular authors or teachers that had a profound impact on your mentality, your work ethic, your drive? And at the same time, are there other authors that you'd recommend to people that they learn, that they follow in order to improve their outlook on life? I really have been probably more influenced by the people that I've met in my life. You know, Maya Angelou, Oprah, um, people like that, uh, President Clinton, Hillary Clinton, um, people who've really inspired me to pursue what I, uh, you know, what I'm doing. And the authors, I think, reinforce the way I feel as opposed to, oh, Here's a new idea. I mean, I love to learn. I love to um, experience what's going on in the world. But I think also getting out and really seeing so much of the world. I've been lucky enough to visit probably way over 100 countries and, and get immersed in, in different cultures. And I think that really gives us a sense for, frankly, how lucky we are. And when you're this lucky, you're not here to take up space you better be doing something productive for the rest of the world because we're incredibly lucky, Ryan. I agree. I'm so glad you said that. And remember a conversation I had with Jim Rogers, and he was saying that a lot of the things 
he perceives and finance comes from him traveling all over the world. I think he t- set the world record for riding a motorcycle through China and through all these other places. So, but I agree with you about being lucky and being in a, a wonderful area. If you look at America right now and you look at some of these other countries and you see the government shutting down businesses at whim, just shutting them down, how does that factor in to industries that people should consider going into? I mean, what are some industries that people should probably be looking at right now considering the idea that a lot of industries like the restaurant industries or travel industries got completely shut down and there's no way I don't think any of them could have prepared for that. So what would you say would be some of the industries people should be looking at or potentially going into knowing that you have the backdrop of lockdowns that could happen again at any time? Well, I think the service industries are always going to be there. I think they're going to come back. They're going to come back differently. Uh, We will have restaurants. I'm hoping that the same ones come back. It, It probably won't be the case. A lot of the smaller ones will come back differently. I think that if I were talking to a child, I would say, digital, digital, digital. The world is changing in that way. And, you know, the way we travel and the way we eat and all those things are also influenced by that. We're not also going to have self-driving automobiles. You know, if you're in the the long haul business, there's not going to be a driver there. It's just the same way we transitioned into robots. So our currency, you know, we're moving into the, the fiat world of of Bitcoin and digital currencies, I don't think money is going away. I think the digital world will will change what we're looking at. But I think the underlying economies are still going to matter. So you have to decide if you're going into a service industry. But also, there are risks in a digital industry. You could be obsolete in two minutes as soon as somebody comes out with something better. So you have to be able to be agile enough to be able to change as the trends do. And the only way you can do that is to keep up with what's going on. Awesome. Thank you. And I, and I, we saw that you wrote an article recently about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. On our show before, we've talked to several individuals who have actually had hesitations and reservations about cryptocurrencies. I think some people like Gerald Salente said, that, you know, they're, they're going to be the wave of the future. And some other people have actually talked about it as well as being positive. But some say, well, fundamentally speaking, if you have gold or silver or real estate or you have something that has intrinsic value, you're in a much better position because you know a cryptocurrency or fiat currency could appreciate or depreciate in value um, quickly. What is your perspective on that? Do you think that cryptocurrencies and cash are more of a liability? compared to holding real estate or holding gold or silver? Well, first of all, all currency currency is fiat. It's based upon something. So our currency is based upon what you perceive the value of the United States to be. So all currency is. That's number one. Number two, um, I think we're going to go into the digital world in terms of crypto. I think, I'm making this up, Ryan, but I think that the Fed is going to come out with a Fed coin in the next couple of years that will be a Fed cryptocurrency in essence. It will be controlled. I want to see cryptocurrency controlled because it's not. 
Um, and the, the mining that takes place, you know, unless you have your key to your wallet, you don't get into it and you can lose your money. I'm not an investor in cryptocurrency because I'm also not convinced about how you get your money out of it. It might be worth $50,000 per Bitcoin, but how do you actually liquidate that? And but glad you brought you that up too, because that, that's what a lot, actually I have a lot of questions about that. You're like, so it's great. It's worth 50000 well, How do you get it out? What do you, what do you use it for? You know? How do you get it out? And yeah. what do you do? You know, MasterCard's going to take it. Do you actually walk in with, you know, one Bitcoin and say, I'd like to buy a car? Is that really what's going to happen? So no one has been able to ask that, you know, answer those questions yet. I do think that, you know, if you're young and you have part of your portfolio, that you want to take a risk on, which is 5%, let's say, of your portfolio, and you want to play around with Bitcoin, fine. But don't expect to liquidate it tomorrow. I don't know how you turn it into cash. Fine. And you mentioned earlier that you solved a problem that out there that people wanted to solve. You were providing financial education for kids. What are some of the problems... We just had a couple of big problems out there that haven't been solved yet. Maybe if people started working on, they too could, you know, find a fortune or have an amazing career. What are some of the problems you think are questions that the world's trying to solve right now? Um, okay, that's a big one. I think that we have the ability right now because we have all the data. We have all the data on you and all the data on me. You know all my behavior. I know all yours. I mean, not me, but I mean the world knows. And we have not come up with investing tools that mirror that. We still have asset allocation that is sort of in the dark ages. Well, if you're this age, you should be, you know, your portfolio should look like this. And if this is your risk tolerance and it's, you know, you're willing to take risk, okay, do this. We do, do not have anyone yet who has the ability, number one, to put all that together and come up with a portfolio that is exactly what I want that meets my needs. That's one. Two, if I were in the medical field, I, we have all the information that floats all over the place on everybody. We do not have the ability for institutions, hospitals to talk to each other. If we had access to all that data, I could walk in, you could plug me into, you know, my AI smart machine, and you could tell me instantaneously, genetically, what am I predisposed to? What am I going to get? How do I treat this? There's a rare, you know, genetic whatever sitting in that one of my genes, you know, is, is from Ireland, and, and you can tell what that is because we don't have the ability now for people to share information, we are not, and we are not doing what we could be doing. So I'd want to see those two things. It's Neil Godfrey. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our, the interview. Neil, what is the best website for people to reach you on? NeilGodfrey.com. Ms. Godfrey, thank you so much. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Out of Limits of Inner Truth radio show. Special thanks to our unbelievable guest, and special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas, and our social producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Out of Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outoflimitsradio.com. 
And till the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace, love, and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening.